Hey, Gabriel Blake. Hey, Gabriel Jose. Where are we today? Well, despite the sudden announcement by Gavin Newsom that our state was reopening this morning, we are still in our respective apartments because nothing has had time to reopen so far. Yeah, I had a feeling that we are like the suckers right now. He's like, hey, no one is sheltering in place anymore. You should be on the streets. But at the same time, I have no idea how uh, London Bridge is going to be reacting to this because I'm pretty sure that this was also a surprise to her. And maybe she's going to be saying tomorrow, I know, we're still going to be like sheltering in place for a bit longer. I did, I did just Google like the color of San Francisco and three hours ago, SFist posted SF County expected to go to purple tier tomorrow. So yeah, it's probably just waiting on her sign off if Google gives her enough money or not. Google? Why Google? Uh, when she was running, they were like, she's in the pocket of the big tech corporations. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, but just leaving the COVID craziness on the side, what did we watch today? We watched... Because this is, not a, <laughs> this is not a regular episode. It's not. This is a very, very special episode. Um, as you might know if you listen to other episodes, we love Lars von Trier, we love Michael Haneke, and we love David Lynch. We reviewed several David Lynch films. You don't... You no, 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 no. I love, the, I love David Lynch, but it's like when we actually talk about Lars von Trier, I think that we... Saying that we love him, He's been too generous, you know. I have to give. I have. I feel compelled to just give the caveat that is like I love to hate him and I hate to love him. But we do love to talk about his movies. Oh yeah, and, yeah, and, definitely. So we yeah. love to talk about the cinema, the films of several directors. <laughs> one of our primary focuses is David Lynch, but mm -hmm. one of our favorite subjects, not primary. Um, and so we decided to rewatch the entire series of Twin Peaks, which initially aired in 1990 with the first season. Season two was 1991, One, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And then the third season was released in 2017 on Netflix. Is that accurate? No, it's in Showtime. It was in Showtime, I think. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for this very special episode, we're reviewing the first season of Twin Peaks, which was only eight episodes after an hour and a half long pilot. So that includes that's included in the eight episodes. Yeah, the pilot is part of the eight episodes. And the funny thing is that the, um, the pilot, there is a version out there, I don't know if it's in France, sorry, in, Fran in France or not, that it actually changes the last five minutes or 10 minutes of the last episode. And they add like some content for just closing the whole story. So I, I actually own this on DVD. Oh, yeah. um, and when I, the first disc is just the pilot. And it asked me, do you want to watch the pilot or do you want to watch the international pilot? And I didn't know what that meant. So I'm guessing I have that on my, on my, in my DVD collection. <laughs> yeah, probably that's it. Like just changing or adding those last minutes, you know, about like some kind of resolution that I won't give it away because I don't know what point you are in on the second season. I'm only like three episodes in, so yeah, don't, don't. Yeah, but you know, okay, uh, yeah, I, I won't give it away. Okay. So how... <laughs> God how, damn it, this is, I have to summarize the plot? Yeah, how, how do we talk about it? Because I think that it's like, I brought it up, I mean, I just brought it up from the perspective that it's like, I love this show. I love it, it's like back in the day, 
well back in the day not on daily nine i didn't watch it on daily nine i remember that it was like a big deal in spain but the thing is that it was not a big deal like a soap opera you know that is like people would be like just looking over their shoulder and say like oh, this is a soap opera fuck this shit no it was a bit more it's like this is elevated soap opera it's like it's entertaining people are going to be like talking about it but it was like the one that started the trend of it's not only about like what you see on the TV, it's a bit more like what you're going to be discussing with your friends and other people that you're going to be like meeting and just having this personal interest of this show. And there are not so many shows nowadays that they can achieve that. Is that the only one that it would come to mind of achieving this? It would be lost from the perspective of how often people would talk about it. Maybe Game of Thrones too. You know, like That's recently. the only thing I was thinking of. But I would say that, like, um, Desperate Housewives, when it came out, generated as much buzz and discussion. I, I don't think it's as good. That's not what I'm saying. But there have been a few kind of hallmark. Yeah, but it's, I'm not talking. I'm not talking about like just people talking about the show. You know, because they are like shows. That the reason why like, I'm not completely sure about Game of Thrones is about the speculation about like what is going on here. I want to solve this mystery. It's a bit more of just having something so compelling that it's not only about like what you see, it's more about like what you don't see, what you're compelled to try to figure it out about like what is the meaning of all of this? Is there like a bigger picture or not? And Lost failed in some kind of way because it was trying to be a bit more of a HBO show but on network television, but Twin Peaks succeeded in some sorts that when we talk about the second season we, we will discuss about like what it failed on the original premise oh so spoiler alert jose doesn't like season two. <laughs> oh no 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 i'm not saying that i don't like <laughs> no, it no, no, I, I, yeah, yeah yeah but I, i'm saying that it was like a bit of a departure of what they're trying to present so when we want to uh, move holland drive that's one of our favorite movies i would say like giving our scores or, or least... series, but yeah <laughs> so uh I actually, basically, uh, Mulholland Drive was born initially, like the concept, as a spin-off for Twin Peaks, for Audrey. Audrey goes to Hollywood. I think you told me that at some point and I completely forgot. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that so I can remember this. Oh, yeah. wow. I hate Audrey in Twin Peaks, but I really like her. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, she she yeah. yeah. You, you will see how the character progress, but what I mean is like it actually just gives like a different light and it's a bit more of a David Lynch wanted to keep exploring that format. And I think that he actually said recently that he's, like, he's done with cinema, that at this point is like shorts or TV shows. Which so, I'm actually okay about because if you look at his track record with, with films, it's like half and half for me. Um, half and half? Seriously? Well, I didn't like Wild as Hard as much as I remember. I I remember hating uh, Firewalk with me. Um, and then there's Dune. Uh, I mean, there's a lot that are kind of like, eh. Yeah. Uh, no, no, I, I can give you that. There are like some, I won't say stinkers, but I would say for the level of quality that he has in Blue Velvet or uh, Mulholland Drive or Lost Highway, then there are other ones that is like, oh, this doesn't look from the same director. I'd agree. And it's interesting what you say about people discussing, it's not just talking about the show like in Game of Thrones, oh, did you find out the, the dragon slayer died or something like that? Um, it's actually discussing what do you think happened? Like we all saw the same thing, but it's unclear. And we have not discussed eight hours before. I mean, you tried with Celine Dion Goes Boating. But... 
we haven't actually tried to discuss eight hours of content before, and so I, I sent you the Wikipedia page before the recording because there's a relatively succinct explanation of each episode, each of the eight episodes. And as I read through them before before I recalled each other on Zoom, I was like, really? Is that like a sure thing? Because that's not what I understood from the episode. I think a lot of it's up for debate. It's less nebulous than um, Mulholland Drive, where we literally don't know what's reality and what's not reality. But there's a lot of discussion for what you think happened, what you think the character's motivations are. Um, so it is interesting from that perspective. Yeah, but just think, as I was mentioning earlier, that the pilot has this international version that they actually try to complete the story. Mulholland Drive, the only version that we have is that complete story. Yeah. You know, is I saw Mulholland Drive. I think that I saw some interview that is that he was just thinking about like this could actually just be like several years, and it's like at some point I'm going to be like throwing everything upside down, and I will be like turning like the dream into the reality world. And it's like, oh, things didn't make sense, but it's like now they make sense, but I'm trying to connect them into what the dream was. And and because of all of this, I. Um... So I will say that my memory of Twin Peaks was more on the eh yeah. version of things. I haven't seen it since I was like, I think I was 23 when I saw it. So that's 14-ish years ago. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I wasn't blown away by it, but I do think it's kind of interesting to look at um, David Lynch's entire, like, oof. What's the less pretentious way to say that? His, his um, body of work? Yeah. So um, he released released Eraserhead in 1977 and completely became like the director to watch. Then he did The Elephant Man, which was very well respected. Dune was a flop. Then he did Blue Velvet, which we both agree is a great film. Yes. He did Wild at Heart then in 1980, no, 1990, which we feel lukewarm about. I liked it a little bit more than you. And then he went into Twin Peaks. So I think that's interesting because he basically had a 50-50 track record up until that point. He did a couple great things and a couple shit things. And then this is the next project he chose to work on. But I would say, I would say, Dune is it. Is that Dune, I still, I, I cannot figure it out why they gave a project like Dune to him. Unless he said, I love it. That I think that it was not the case. I think that it was a bit more that, eh, we have the evidence here, and, you know, he's cool. Is it probably going to be like a good match? Uh, sure, I will give it a try. Do you have a Steam also around that I can use on this movie? Uh, but while at heart, I still think that it's fail. It's a fail movie per se, but I still think that it's interesting to watch. So I wouldn't call it, you know, if another director had done that, I would feel like, hmm, there may be something here. I don't see it, but there may be something. Okay, I see your point. Yeah, I think if you were just to see this in the new directors category at Sundance or the San Francisco Film Festival, I would probably also be like, this wasn't perfect, but it's somebody to watch. Yeah. The only problem is that with David Lynch, we already know what is like the the level that he can produce. Exactly, and that's, that's the problem. And if you're comparing like um, Dune to Mulholland Drive, you know, it's just like... <laughs> It's all about perspective. Um, so getting back to the series, again, we're only talking about the first eight episodes. Mm -hmm. um, so, again, it aired in 1989 to 1990. 
and it takes place in a fictional town called Twin Peaks. It takes place in Washington, near the border mm-hmm. of Canada. Yep. Um, and in the first episode, the homecoming queen of this small town, which is very quaint and the people are, well, they're not friendly, but they're small town America. Um, the homecoming queen is murdered in a pretty graphic way. And her best... She's not murdered. She's found murdered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They find her body. So, great semantics. What's up, guy? Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you, man. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, yes. So, they fi- someone finds her body. Um, and her best friend is discovered having been beaten. And she's like catatonic, right? She's basically in a state where she can't really talk. She's, no. Uh, what is her name? Uh, Ronnie? I think that is her name. Annette. Ronette. Oh, yeah. Uh, so she's not really her best friend. Her best friend is actually Donna. Oh, it's classmate. Yeah, sorry. You're yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. Ronette, okay, I mean, we are giving like a bit away ahead, but it's like she was her peer or team, like a co-worker in the perfume department in the Hornet store. Which is but important. It's important, but it's like, it, they never say that they are like close friends or anything. Yeah, you're right. I read that wrong. Um, so because of this fairly, well, because of this traumatic crime, mm-hmm. FBI agent Dale Cooper, played by Kamala, <laughs> is sent to Twin Peaks to, to investigate. He mm-hmm. immediately discovers that a piece of paper with a letter in it has been inserted under uh, Laura's fingernails, which he associates with the murder that had happened a year ago. So he suspects there's a serial killer. Um, and again, it's hard to summarize eight hours of this, but it's Dale hunting down the serial killer in collaboration with the local kind of podunk sheriff's department mm-hmm. and just becoming familiar with the characters in this town. And the characters are, they vary from completely insane, such as the log lady that carries a log that she believes is sentient. It's not um, to- You don't know that. You don't know that. Don't know you that. cannot hear it. Hear the log talk. <laughs> just tell it to the log. <laughs> and then there's um, like, there's an Asian owner of a local mill that belonged to her husband that was belonged to the husband's family. So there's the sister of the deceased husband who's very bitter that this foreigner essentially owns the mill. There are, um, it becomes very clear that drugs are being trafficked into the town. Mm-hmm. There's a local lodge owner. Um, I'm not gonna be able to think of the, the great Looking. Northern Hotel. Yeah. So it's owned by kind of a wealthy family, and it Mr. Horn. Yes, just the Horn brothers. It becomes clear that they have some shady dealings, and they own actually a casino slash brothel that's just on the northern side of the Canadian border. So again, there's no way you can summarize what eight hours of this is, but it's just kind of all the characters are well developed. There's this murder mystery. There are drugs, and there's a lot of slapstick comedy. Yeah, I think that the uh, the humor from uh, David Lynch is like pretty present here about like just and it's not only visual humor. It's a bit more about uh, just reducing it of how absurd the situations can be. I agree with you. It is absurdist humor, and sometimes you're like, "Am I supposed to laugh at this like horrific thing?" Like, um, 
Laura Palmer's body is having an autopsy, and there's this awful FBI... Um, Albert. Yep. Yes, Albert comes and says some disgusting things to the good local town people over her body, and one of the good local town people decks him, and he literally just falls on this dead body, and you're like, this is horrific and, like, hilarious. Um, but also, there's a scene where there's a sheriff's deputy, and I can't remember if this is in the first couple episodes of season two, so this might be a spoiler. I think his name is Andy. Andy's walking to go meet everybody else, and he steps on a board, and the board comes up and hits him in the face. And any other director, I would have been like, fuck you, I'm smarter than that. But the idea of David Lynch being behind the camera and chuckling at his own lame joke, it, like, it made it super funny to me. Well, I mean, it- it's, it's, you know, is that the kind of, the kind of thing, you know, that like when someone carries a joke too far, that is, like, oh, they made a joke and they try to make it like even more funny. And they said, no, it's, it's over. Just let it go. Let it die. I think that that joke was the other way around. That is like, look, that was not funny when he hits his, uh, his nose, but I just seeing how awkward he feels about like everyone looking at him because I think that is Albert, uh, Cooper, Harris. All of them like looking at him while he's still like just looking like you know like walking like a crab with his knees with bent, yeah. yeah, with with the nose bleeding, you know, and they're like, "Good job, Andy. Good job. I'm okay. I'm yeah, okay. I, I'm okay. I'm okay." <laughs> I, he carries it to a point that is a, this is a stupid, but somehow it's funny. If you had a stop only at the visual impact, probably would have been like, "No, that was not." Fine. This would be like just a scrap level humor, you know. But when you carry it for two minutes, if it's a bit more of okay, I don't want to index on the heat. I want to index on the uh, on the reality of this small village about like how people, how Harris, for example, and Cooper, that is also sold on the idea of uh, this small community. How we're going to be like reacting to someone getting hurt in that kind of way, and how Albert look at him is like you are just mentally challenged. I agree, and I actually found that to be, I could be wrong, but I feel like David Lynch forcing us to sit with something that might be uncomfortable because it's it's sad or violent or absurdly funny. I feel like he pushed that further than he had in other, like, previous works. Um, there were some scenes where I felt so uncomfortable and it went on for so long, I felt the urge like fast forward i didn't but i was like i'm this is really manipulating my emotions like for example well i don't want to give you the example because it's literally the first like five minutes of season two episode oh one. yeah yes yeah. <laughs> i think that's a consistent abuses of that like way more of him but the one that i was thinking of season one is when they're in the graveyard just trying to bury uh laura and Lila, her father, actually just drops. It's like he just goes crazy. He's like, "Okay, I I cannot leave my daughter go." And he just drops himself into the car, into the uh, let's say the, the coffin. coffee. Yeah, the coffee. Uh, and the machine. And the machine cannot actually go up and down. And we see like just thirty seconds of people like, "Oh my God, what is going on?" And he just crying. You know, He's just stopping while this coffin's like, yeah, like wailing, <laughs> and then immediately we go to the uh, double hour cafe and we yep. see like just Sally just making fun. Is that like, and then I see you know, is that like he just jumped into the coffin and then I see it starts going up and down. And then he's like, Oh, okay, you guys can be terrible too. Um, 
So is there anything left in the synopsis? Again, I would recommend you just go to the Wikipedia page for season one. There's fairly succinct descriptions. Don't read too far in because there are some resolutions, but... Um, I would recommend to watch it directly instead of actually reading the, the summaries because even for me, that we watched it like two weeks ago, we started watching it like two weeks ago, I think. Reading the synopsis right now is like, I don't remember some of the details or they don't feel like that important as actually just watching the episode. And this is one of those shows that it feels more like experience when it clicks, the more about the resolution. Because it's true that the murder of Laura Palmer is what it triggers the whole series, but it's not so much about Laura Palmer or her murder than actually about like this weird village. Yeah, absolutely. And it is weird. And David Lynch isn't necessarily interested, even though you would say, what is this about? It's about solving the deaths of Laura Palmer. I don't get the impression, David Lynch, who directed all of these episodes, right? But he no. stepped away in season two. No, he didn't direct all of them. On the first well, season. You can just check it on the wiki page. No, 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 I believe you. Um, but he he had less to do with season two than he did season one. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, but uh, again, it's not about solving the death of Laura Palmer. You're just you're here for a character examination and like watching how these people interact. And it's funny because let me just ask you a question and answer with a yes or no. At the end of season one, which ends with. Um, Agent Cooper getting shot in his hotel room by an unknown person. Oh, spoiler alert. Do you feel at that point the death of Laura Palmer is solved? Sorry, you, the question was like if the death of Laura Palmer is solved? Yeah, do we know who killed her by the end of season one? No, no, there is no way that you can know it at the end of the season one. You can know, sorry, you know who did it from the perspective of the dream that she had, that uh, uh, Agent Cooper had, you know? Yeah. And the mother also had, is that you have the idea that someone with long hair and a bit of beard is that the person that supposedly killed Laura. But that's it. That's what you know. You know, you have like this uh, sketch of the face that I don't know if they have it on... Yeah, they have it already on season one, no? Yes. Yes, they did. Yeah, and I they, think they that, added it and then they, they bring it up like the first thing in season two, and he's like, "That's the guy I saw." Yeah, so it's like a, you know that that's the only thing that you know is that there is like shootings, sorry, there is like some scenes, some like a, how do you say, like some yeah, some time air time that we see Bob's face. So so there is an unknown Bob, but we also get a confession from. A guy who works at the works for the not for the brothel. He works for the owner of the brothel, bringing drugs in to sell the high school students. Jacques, mm-hmm. he confesses like this is how she died. I was involved, and so was this other person, right? No, he didn't say that he killed her. He said that he didn't kill her. Jacques Renault is like it's actually the thing because basically they took they took Laura from the brothel to the cabin in the woods. But then he says, he's like, oh, Leo was doing something, you know, and he attacked me and I lost conscience. And Leo actually took the goals. So, so again, I also feel like it is not resolved. But when I, I read the synopsis from season eight, it says 
Um, Jacques brags to, to Cooper about the murder of Laura. And again, it was his bird that pecked her and caused all these weird injuries to her. But the point, the point of all this is like, you can watch this episode and we can be have even similar tastes and understanding of television and film like we do and not agree on what you're actually seeing, which I think is kind of the magic of this. Yeah. This well, I mean, I think that the summaries is like someone was writing them, remembering like half of the details because I don't remember him like just bragging about that. He brags about like just taking Laura and Ronette from the uh, one eye jack brothel with them. And taking them to the, the yeah. train. No, not, not to the train, to the cabin. Yeah, yeah, to the cabin in the bush. Yeah, in the to the cabin in the bush. Yeah, but he never took it to the train car. And he's like, that's the other thing. It's like a, something that we haven't mentioned, but it's pretty clear that uh, David Lynch likes to be revisionist. You know, and he actually takes the format of soap operas. And it's like, even when I think about like what time, and we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, something amazing about this show is that this show could be shot right now with the same elements, is that maybe you would change the fashion a bit, but just a tiny bit. And it's like, it's, you could just consider this like just being shot right now. No one will be like saying, like, ah, 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 this is not how shows are made nowadays. Is that is amazingly fitting to nowadays standards of, TV, of television. I I would agree. I think it does feel slightly dated in terms of the visual aspects, but ultimately they, this stands the test of time. I mean, there's nothing here that feels like, well, people, yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. Yeah, yeah. So it's true that it's like something that I, I thought I several times, okay, is this the the, the the late 80s, early 90s, you know, because there is almost nothing that you connect with that. It's like, it's more like it's connecting to the 50s, more than actually to the 90s, you know, how the girls dress up. You how know, they with, dance in the diners, yeah. And it actually made me think about Mulholland Drive, and it makes me feel like David Lynch has an obsession with that golden age of Hollywood and television, you know? You know, for example, like the show that, uh, the, sorry, the movie that they're shooting in Mulholland Drive on the dream sequence. Mm-hmm. It is like, mm-hmm. this is the girl. It's like, it's completely Girls in the cool skirts and they're dancing, yeah. Yeah, it's like, he has an obsession for that. And he's like, I love on this one that he feels like, okay, this is a noir film mixed up with a soap opera, mixed up with all the weirdness that I like to add to everything. You know, and a because slight, slight amount of paranormal aspects to it. In the first season, yeah. On the second season, they go like way farther into that. Yeah, yeah. But it's you can see the element. You can see how he actually he mixes everything up. And we haven't actually said that all the characters when they're introduced, they actually are introduced like to their dark side too. It's like everyone is dating someone. But at the same time, they are cheating on that someone with someone else. Everyone has an affair. Absolutely everyone has an affair. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Regardless, yeah, regardless if they're good or bad, is like Donna maybe the only one that she didn't have an affair at the beginning. But it's hilarious how at the show progresses is that they didn't even mention about like who was supposed to be her boyfriend. It just disappears. Poof. Who is supposed to be whose boyfriend? Donna. Donna's boyfriend. Yeah, Donna is supposed to be the With... bad guy that tries to pick take over um, the six feet under mortuary. 
He's like redheaded, and he's best friends with Bobby. He was he was blonde, no? Uh, you could say blonde redhead, but you know <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, that's his boyfriend. Yeah, and that one is Michael, I think that it was called, and that's the reason why it's like just weird when uh, Cooper has the dream, and it's like it's about Bob and Mike, when there is a Bobby and a Michael. And a Michael. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of this like similar names, like when uh, they did, they discover the one-armed man and they think he's gonna know a Bob, and he's like, yeah, I know a Bob. He's like the best veterinarian ever. But it has nothing to do with like the murder. But it does. Yeah, it does, but not in the way you think it does. Yeah. Yeah, and that's way to the second season. There is like way more to the one uh one uh sorry, we have like a one armed guy and we have a one eyed woman. That is Nadine. And Nadine doesn't have an affair, it's true, but she's insane. But she hates her husband, and her husband is having an affair. Yeah, well but you know. I mean, if I was in a situation like that, probably we'd be having an affair too. Well, probably we'd be having a divorce. But Nadine is unwell mentally, so... She's unwell, and she's super strong. She's super strong, yes. <laughs> and she has a, a dream to create a, a completely silent... Um, oh, what is it called? Like a runner, so that you can open your drapes completely silently. That's true. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's hard to ask this, but is there a scene that stands out particularly to you in the eight episodes? And I know you can't just like run through all the scenes in your head, but for me, even after I watched it the first time as a 23 year old, there's something that has stuck out to me for years as the creepiest, most interesting scene of the series. And I'll give you a hint, it's a dream sequence. Yeah, I assume that is like the mother, sorry, the mother, Laura's mother dream that is also shared with Cooper. And is that when they're dreaming, because it was going to be almost my pick too, about like how she sees Bob for the first time. And he's... You'll have to tell me if this is the same one, because this scene, and it blew my mind as a young, impressionable 23-year-old with no taste, where Agent Cooper is much, much, much older, but he's in a creepy club. Uh with a woman who looks like Laura Palmer and a uh, dwarf or a midget. I'm not sure what the appropriate word is. Um, and the actors played out the scene and spoke the words completely backwards. backwards. Yep. And then David Lynch played it forwards and the effect he's able to have, it's so jarring. It's so, it makes me so uncomfortable um, that I just thought he was so ingenious to do this little thing and it, it was so effective. Yeah. I could say that the first time that I watched it, yeah, I would agree with you, you know, is that the red, uh, ah, what is it called? The red room? Yeah, I don't know how they call it, you know, uh, all the summaries, but uh, yeah, that's like, pretty impressive. And he keeps using it on the second season, Firewalk With Me, the third season, it's like, it's, it's a common thing. And you're going to be listening it more and more, like later on the second season. So you know, he's- For a while? Yeah, he, He's building a wall, you know, is that basically what I like that the business is doing here is not like just telling a story only. It's like he's building a wall of supernatural things. And this this room is like it's important for him. Uh, but I think that something that really struck me this time, it was about like how smart the music was used, but still using a very 
soap opera kind of way. But it's like you don't have the uh, the budget for just having 200 songs. So you have to be like a bit more smart about like when you're going to be using each one of them. And just like you have your creepy music, but you have to be smart about like exactly at what point you're going to be using it. Yeah, so there are a number of themes that were written for the show. And there's like the tragedy, sad theme. There's the mischievous, sexy theme. There's the happy theme. And the music is so iconic that I promise you, if you haven't seen this, and you go to watch yeah, it, you'll recognize this immediately. It's continued to be sampled to this day in electronic music. It shows up all the time. It's literally the definition of iconic. The second I hear any of these themes, I know exactly what the bridge Bang, 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 bang. Yeah. It's, yes, exactly. And the thing is, like, they're not uber complex music. It's just that it's extremely characteristic, you know, extremely defining of the show. So every single time that it just pops up is, oh, okay, cool. It almost, he tries to create themes and it's something that it will have worked well in a 90 minute movie. But on this one, just being like so bold about using it, like, you know, over eight episodes, not only eight episodes, because the second season, they reuse like most of the music. And they still evocate like, the same kind of feelings about, okay, this may not be like the creepiest thing, but as you actually use creepy music on this other thing that really impacted me, is going to be like resonating with me and elevating this moment as creepier than it actually is, or just preparing me and just being like foreshadowing. So, yes, exactly. And when you say themes, it's like literally themes that you see in classical music. So in like Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, you're introduced into a theme, and then over the next three um, three acts, called, yeah. you hear them throughout, used in different ways in different situations, and it's it's brilliant in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that uh, Angelo Badalamenti, I think that is the name. I think that they actually work in other movies. I think that Blue Velvet. I would well, have to check it out. Yeah, I, I don't want to, to actually say anything, but I think that this is not the only time that they collaborated. And I think that the scene for me that it was like just most impactful because I was like just looking forward to is like I already know that the uh, the red room it was something that's like, yeah, I know that it's going to be like happening, I know that it's going to be age, I know that it's going to be like just talking backwards, I know that the media is going to be there, I know that Laura is going to be there. Is that I, I knew all of that. I was like just waiting for it. But it's the part that I only remember partially, but I still was looking forward to is like when Laura has the vision. Sorry, like when Laura's mother has the visions. And the first time that they actually show Bob on the screen. Which is when he's crouching behind Laura's bed. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, how come like just seeing someone like partially how can be so disturbing? And it reminded me of a probably the most, the scariest scene that I've ever seen in a movie that is in Mulholland Drive. I don't even have to say it. I know. I know yeah. which one it is. <laughs> but it's still like, look, there is nothing. It's like when you, are, but it's like, he uses Sally the same way. That is like, you use music smartly and you actually empower this scene. It's like, if I actually go, like, you know, like what is happening in Mulholland Drive, it's like, if I only just take the 10 seconds of him walking behind the diner, I don't get it, but it's like you go over the build-up, like the script, like just describing the dream, and you go over the music, you know, like just building the tension and the the, the acting per se. It's like just seeing that person there is like he's really impactful. 
And it's one of the things that I feel pissed that Mulholland Drive wasn't turned into a show because I wanted more scenes like that. <laughs> so I completely agree with you. The second I saw that scene, I was like, bam, behind the diner, Mulholland Drive. But I would argue with you that um, the scene is more skillfully done in Twin Peaks because Bob, he's just he's just a kind of like a white trash looking guy, kind of, not even white trash, just like Pacific Northwest sort of guy. And he's just crouching by a bed, that's it. And it's so horrific. Whereas Mulholland Drive, the guy is completely destroyed. You know, he has all the makeup. He's a homeless, yeah, he's just a homeless yeah. person. <laughs> so the the his ability to make those moments so disturbing, it's just unparalleled, I would say. I would say so, because they are not, as you said, I mean, as we were talking a second ago, is that if you analyze them in a vacuum, if I give someone, instead of just giving them like six episodes for just build, well, three, four episodes to building up to that moment, if I only give them like the three, the 30 seconds of that, they'll be like, I, I don't get it, you know? But it's like when you actually build up like that wall around them, you know, like that kind of safety that you feel in that small village that at the beginning, when they present you Twin Peaks, you feel that nothing happens here. I but it's like, like exactly. And Cooper really wants to live there, but it's like when they, and there is a joke at some point that someone asks them, is like, oh, what do you think about a small village? It's like, oh, I love it. I wish that I could move here. It's like, because it's so quiet, so, you know, like completely normal. It's like, so yesterday, the meal, spoiler alert, was burned down. Someone got shot. This person is amnesiac. And you say that nothing happens here? <laughs> what are you thinking about? So, but the thing is, like, he works up like this kind of, uh, how do you say, like, build up of, it's weird, but we don't know how weird it is. Is that how he started like unraveling everything? It feels like, and that's the part that I may have like a bit of a problem with this show, that they try to sell like, this is perfect and idyllic, and what it triggers everything is like the murder of Laura Palmer. But it's like, just given all the shit that it was happening, left and right, with everyone, you know, with the drugs, with the brothel, with the uh, attempted murders, is almost like, are, are you serious? Is that how come this was not happening every single day? Because we had to think that Twin Peaks, every single episode represents one day. Well, so I agree with you, and I think David Lynch likes to play with this idea of perception versus reality. Like, yeah. oh, this is what things look like. This is what thing what people project onto this. But I mean, uh, there's a secret society that the local townsmen have created to fight evil. So we know <laughs> that they said has been going on for decades. We know this shit has been happening for years and years and years. It's just not when you see, when you look at the surface, and David Lynch wants to scratch the surface yeah. and show you all the ugly stuff underneath, which yeah. he's brilliant at doing. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like Blue Velvet, you know, but it's like in, I think that it's like in Blue Velvet, for example, how it's presented. That part is more believable. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this as a weakness per se. It's like at this point, I just need picking more than anything else because I love it. I think that I actually just. As, as an audience, as an audience, I feel like more compelled to just follow each one of the twists that he's going to be presenting. But as someone that is trying to just look for holes, I just feel it's like, I don't buy it. You know, that is like all of this is starting like just happening because of this murder is uh, a bit more far-fetched. It's almost like just for feeding the audience more than actually just building a believable environment. 
I see your point, but I mean, a similar murder happened a year ago that they talk about extensively. Like, it's not like everything was perfect and then all of a sudden Laura Palmer was killed. Well, but the thing is that that murder didn't happen in Twin Peaks. It happened, happened in the area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it happened in the area. But it's like, it almost feels like, oh, that murder happened one year ago and now Laura gets murdered. But given everything that happens on this show, you know, that is like basically seven days, because I think that the last episode is just the night of the seventh day. Yeah, it's the wrap up, the wrap up of everything. Yep. Yeah. And it's like basically the meal burning down, day in the one eye jack, Cooper getting shot. You know, it's like it's a lot of things. Leo getting shot too and going on easy. So Shelly maybe dying in the mill, we don't know. Catherine yeah. was in the mill when it burned down. Who knows what happened there? Yeah. So uh, my question for you is like, how did you feel about the reveal of uh, Josie Pucker being a femme fatale? Um, to be honest, I was a little bit disappointed. I, I thought she was kind of the straight man, right? Like she was just what she was seemed to be. And to find out that she was so Damn. evil. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I really liked Josie until that moment, and to see her get into bed with the horn guy, I was like, this doesn't ring true, but I, I get it. This is a soap opera, even if it is elevated, there has have to be twists you didn't see coming. Yeah. Yeah, for me, that party was completely noir. That is, I see just yeah. getting, you could actually understand that she's just in bed, literally in bed with a detect, sorry, with the sheriff, with Harris from the perspective of just having some kind of advantage. But at the same time, and just having some kind of protection layer if something were to happen. But at the same time, she's the worst of all of them. She's just manipulating everyone around. And to burn down the mill is one thing, but to try and burn down the mill while Catherine is in it, it just takes her to a completely different level. <laughs> oh yeah, because there was a change in the insurance for the beneficiary to be her. That I was like, can't you do that in the States? Can you actually <laughs> like, yeah, my beneficiary is not going to be my husband. My beneficiary is going to be my sister-in-law. I mean, if you have all the signatures, <laughs> that's all that's required in David Lynch. <laughs> sure, look, there are like some things that this, that this is actually, you have to consume it as a treat you know like an experience it's not about like okay this doesn't make complete sense because on the second season things get like even weirder or less consistent let's just leave it there so i will say my overall impression from when i watched this when i was 23 i didn't even bother finishing season two and that was at the peak of my love for david lynch so that kind of poisoned the well for my idea of the entire series mm. i was honestly blown away at how much I liked this show. I think it's funny. I think it's scary. I think it's disturbing. Um, that being said, it's an experience. It's not something to dissect because you will find a lot of problems. Like it's it's yeah. not most like thoroughly thought out. Yeah. And if, well, I mean, I think that is well thought, but it's like well thought with compromises. You know, it's like all the jokes that they do about uh, invitation to love. Like that, you know, like drama, like soap opera that everyone is watching. And it's like when they put it on the screen, it's like, this is bizarre and absurd. But it makes you just reflect about like what you're watching right now. It's like this is bizarre and absurd at the same time. The only difference is that you have more context here. That about and it's like that's slightly more subtle, but only slightly. <laughs> yeah, only, 
only is that you you don't have like the full picture because there is this scene where Harris is asking uh, Lucy, I think that is her name, like the secretary in the, uh, in the service station. Like, so what's going on? And she was watching the soap opera. So she gives like a 30 seconds or one minute summary. There is a holy shit. But now when you think about it, half of the things that she actually described, they happen in the, in the yeah. first season. You know, so it's like she's foreshadowing the rest of the first season. But I also think that David Lynch was poking fun at himself because the way he got started was filming those like absurd Dior um, perfume commercials that make absolutely no sense. They're just like, they're like a straight male fantasy, right? Of the woman in the dress and somehow that sells the perfume. I. At least I like to think that he was making fun of his early career work. Yeah, no, that, that can be true. That can be true. I think that he's, just, from my perspective, I think that he is also just making fun of American TV. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I think that is like one of the things when I I think that it tells you like when we started watching the show, I tell you about like oh how many episodes are you in because I was having the feeling like I don't think that this host is weight by today's standard, only with watching one or two episodes. I think that it needs to click, you know? And it's like, if you actually check the uh, the audience from this uh, series, it started crazy. It started at 34 million people. Then it moved to 23, and then it dropped to 19. But 19 a... for season two? No, 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 for the, oh, just the third that... episode. Yeah, it yeah. just dropped. It just draws like basically to half of the audience by the third episode. And it's, it's true, it's true that it's normal for the first episode of a show like just having like a lot of audience. But in this case, it makes a lot of sense because it takes a while for us to just click into what he's trying to do. And when you actually connect with what he's trying to do, I'm just mind blown about like how enjoyable this is. Honestly, it's like I, yeah. Is that I couldn't stop watching it. Like there were like some days that it was like two episodes in a row or even three. I was like, oh yeah, this this has like a lot of people. They have a lot of names, but somehow every single time, and it's not like one of those shows that is like, okay, I only want to see like what these two characters are doing. No, is like I want to see everything. Yeah, I think last Friday I I was spending the evening alone and I'm pretty sure I watched four and a half episodes and I was like, wow, I thought this was going to be a little bit of a chore and I just, I loved it. I loved yeah. it. Yeah. That being said, in 1989, I don't know that I would have the patience to wait a week for the next episode. It's fairly complex, the plot, and because it's not exactly clear what's exactly happened, I don't think I would have had the patience to be like, Oh, let's wait a week. Let's wait another week. Yeah. No, I I agree on that. I think that this for the binge age that we are in is a perfect match. It's like I was talking with some people the other day and I said, Oh, what are you guys watching? What would you recommend? I said, I don't know if I would recommend it if you guys didn't watch it, but it's super enjoyable to watch in a you know, in this kind of I'm not going to stop watching it watching two picks but now thinking about like imagine because he was also playing with cliffhangers imagine like just finishing watching the first season with cooper bleeding out on the ground and just having to wait like for six nine months i would have been so upset i i don't know that i would have watched season two and that's actually what i texted you and i was like wait 
does it really end after se- episode eight? Like, there have to be more episodes in season one. And you're like, no, just the eight. Yeah, and the thing is that like, uh, he once again plays with the idea of what a cliffhanger used to be on soap operas. You know, so I yeah. honestly, I honestly, yeah, I was listening to a podcast the other day that they were saying that uh, we wouldn't have Mother Day TV without I Love Lucy, and there is a good reason for that. But I don't think that we will have Mother TV mysteries without Twin Peaks. I would, yeah, I would agree. I think that this probably stood out in 1989 as something that has never even been, like, nothing had been done close to that. And I also would argue that Mulholland Drive coming out in like 2001 has completely influenced the last 21, 20 years of television in the same way. Do you think that Mulholland Drive influenced television? Yes. And what sense? Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm curious. I'm curious because I don't know, you know, it's like the, the resource of all of this was a dream is that has been used since the, well, since forever, basically. You know? Yeah, but I think this idea of, um, how do I put this? Like, Again, he started this in Twin Peaks, but the idea that you can start a mystery and not necessarily resolve it, because that's not the point of the show, is to get to this ending where things are wrapped up, to like have an experience. Like we were talking about Game of Thrones. I don't think Game of Thrones was like an experience. You go to see a specific plot. You don't go to guess, hey, what did you think that you saw? Like that's not the point. But things like Lost, I think, are these like, hey, let's have a mystery where the resolution of the mystery isn't the point. Yep. It's a bit more about like the trip that you're doing there. You need to watch the leftovers. You need to stop like yes, you know, like slacking about that. You need to watch the leftovers, honestly. But yeah, I, I understand what you mean. But it's like a, one of the things that David Lynch regrets about uh, Twin Peaks is that in the second season he had pressure from a uh, what was this on uh, CBS? Uh, no, ABC, sorry. ABC, pressure from ABC for just solving the main mystery of the show. About like Hooky and Laura Palmer. He wanted to actually just keep stretching it out. And it was like, I, I'd rather like never give an answer. You know, I never like just close that part of the story. But it's like, no, no, we want it. So are you going to make me watch Firewalk with me after this? Yes. You bastard. <laughs> after watching the second season, yeah, I wanted to watch it because I also wanted to watch. I mean, there is a Criterion Collection edition for this. Oh! Is so like, I just say. The next Armageddon. Um, exactly. Uh, what was I going to say about... So for anyone listening, um, after the ending of the second season of Twin Peaks, was it after the ending? Yeah, he released a two-hour, well, like a feature-length film that continues the story on a little bit. Yeah, it's a prequel, sequel, weird thing. It's very bizarre, and Laura Palmer is naked the entire time, so. Yep, yep. and uh, David Duchovny is there too. I think that is also on the second season, as a translate. Yeah. I don't remember that. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like in the last part of the second season, because the second season is 22 episodes, or something crazy like that in comparison. So we will continue to review um, season two in two parts. Yeah. this podcast and then how many episodes are season three uh i think that it was 12. uh no it was 18. it was 18 episodes that's also like pretty fucking long 
probably two two episodes of season yeah. three. And the thing with season three is like all the episodes in the uh, in that season are directed by David Lynch. That that's not something that happened in the other seasons. So I'm looking at his um, IMDb page. It looks like he directed how many episodes of season one? Like three or four, I think. I think it's six. One, two. According to the Wikipedia, that sounds pretty low. He did one, two, three, four, five, six. I don't know. Creator, but regardless, he had way more input into season one. He completely stepped away in season two and then came back for all of yeah. season three. He actually came back for the last episode. So we will discuss the last episode is an interesting one of the second season. Yeah. All right. Yeah, as we actually uh, used to joke with my friends, it's like, what, did you want me to close this show? After you actually just remove me from control, from creative control? Okay, let's see how I close it. <laughs> we, we spoke about, an, an, well, I'm not sure what episodes or what order the podcast will be released, um, but we talked recently about how we would like to have dinner with Michael Haneke. I, I would genuinely like to have dinner with David Lynch. I think he would be an interesting guy to have a two-hour conversation with yeah, I mean, I think as you were talking about like the uh, how flustered he felt about having to say a short word, I think that would be like a very, very interesting person to have dinner with. I think that Haneke, maybe he tries to murder me, but not in a not in an evil way. But he's like, no, this is nature. Don't worry, I'm going to yeah. just just this stab is you. This the middle class. Don't just relax. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do. Don't worry. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and Lars von Trier probably will be insulting me all the time. We decided Lars von Trier is not invited to our dinner party. <laughs> no, certainly not. But no, David Lynch, yeah, out of all the directors that I think that we talk pretty often, I think the first for me with David Lynch, and second, because I haven't watched enough movies of him, it would be Gaspar Noé. I'm not sure about that one. I, mean, I will I think... say, after the five obstructions, I would invite Jorgen Leth. <laughs> because you feel pity for him. <laughs> like, <laughs> <I'm> like, <"Hi." laughs> With Gaspar Noe, my only fear would be like, he would be spiking my drink. He would be like just putting a roofie on probably, you know, just for, just for the giggles. <laughs> I feel like he would just like shout out random, disgusting, violent, sexual things just to see my reaction. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, with David Lee, I have to feel that his perception of I love I love the priest that he uses for just looking at this country. I love it. You know, it's like I think that's if all the directors that I think that they try to capture what America is, I I love his perspective. <laughs> I love it. You know, and this is something that is that we discussed with uh, with Ang Lee and the uh, the ice storm. Was it? Yeah, it was. And that I felt a bit like weird about like how this Asian director comes and tries to do like this middle-class suburban American story that for me felt a bit like, eh, it doesn't tell me completely anything. With Devin Lynch, everything that he presents in this bizarre kind of ways is that, yeah, I mean, it's true. America is not exactly like that, but he's just giving a spin to what American is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you really want the voice of America, go with Kelly Reichardt, but David Lynch's perspective is interesting. <laughs> okay, cool. So, should we score this? Let's do our questions. Even though this okay. is a TV show, let's do that. Okay, would you watch it again? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, 
Definitely. Like for me, it's something that is like, I don't want to even like just watch it again. I want to watch it with someone for the first time. You know, about but in like, like three years, I need to like separate this experience from the next one. I think that this is so. I think that the second season is going to be like changing my uh, my perception of this, like towards the end, because I think that it, it becomes like a bit weaker. But uh, I almost this is a show that I will almost like just watch again. There is something that I forgot to mention that is like I love that Laura is a high school student. You know, and there is like some drama about like you know like with her uh, uh, peers from class. We only see high school once. Once in the whole show, <laughs> that I find it like just mesmerizing. That is, I like, look, I don't fucking care about high school. Let's just be completely honest here. Well, sorry, yeah, I don't like this. yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting. Blue Velvet has high school, uh, uh, but we don't see it. Wow, the heart does, but what Laura if I in high school, she's like 15. Well, sure, I mean, we see her outside. It's no, she's 17, I think. Because otherwise it would be like just pretty weird, like the affair that you guys would come out like that. That's why the mom wants to keep them apart. She's not legal yet. But she's close to be legal. Yeah, but so is Laura I... Palmer. <laughs> True. I mean, but Laura Palmer used to work in a brothel too. So I mean, just saying. <laughs> there are like some difference there. Um, but uh, what I was going to say is that this is a show that for me, after finishing watching the first season, is that. I think that it was like one in the morning or something. I couldn't stop watching. It's like, I, I want more. And it was like a show that is like, okay, I know where it's going. But if I didn't know, and this was like just the end of the first season, I think that I would have started watching it again. It's like, I want to now knowing where these characters are going to go. I want to see if I'm missing any clue that I didn't get. I do think that if, if you were to rewatch it again immediately, you would absolutely catch things that you missed. And I mean, there's just a lot that's... Uh, cohesive but like very subtle in this yeah and the only problem is that the second season being 22 episodes uh at that point i'm going to feel it's like no i don't want to watch 30 episodes again right now i feel like david lynch he was right to try and sell mulholland drive as a six episode uh miniseries i think that's his forte is like his stories are bigger than a movie but not like 24 episodes so something that I was going to be like mentioning before we started recording the podcast uh, is that I think that they presented the uh, third season of uh, of Twin Peaks to the Golden Globes as a 12-hour uh, movie. I mean, that makes more sense than uh, that Matt Damon sci-fi film as comedy, so... <laughs> Sure. I'm <laughs> just saying that is that he was trying to present it as a complete story from the beginning to the end. About like, no, this is not about episodes. Episodes is because no one's going to be like watching, sorry, 18 episodes, you know, 18 hours in a single seat. He's like, I'm not in Maverman. I'm better than him, but I'm not in Maverman. That being said, I'm going to make you watch an Emar Bergman film very soon that I swear to God, David Lynch saw and was like this. I'm going to make this film from now on. It's it's called Night of the Wolf or Hour of the Wolf um, and it's paranormal and it's like, uh, David Lynch could have directed this. Hey. This is ridiculous. Hey, so that's going to be our second Emma Berman movie. How many Almodovar films have you made me watch? Oh, for the podcast, one. Only one. Oh, okay. But I will make you watch Valverde, don't worry. Uh, would you recommend this? To be honest, 
The answer is yes, but it would be in pretty rare occasions. I don't know that many people that would be interested in this. Would you recommend Blue Velvet or any other uh, David Lynch movie before this? Before Twin Peaks, yes. Mulholland Drive, 100%. Blue Velvet, probably Eraserhead, because I think that's an, an important film. Mm. Um, this is one of his funnest, I think. Some of the other ones are work to get through. But this is on the spectrum of like Doom to Mulholland Drive. This is definitely closer to Mulholland Drive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I'm, I'm just, okay. I'm just saying from the perspective, if someone were to ask you, can you recommend me a TV show? Um, I know that it was his feet under for Cougar you. Cougar Town. <laughs> happy endings. Okay, so you recommend happy endings and his feet under before this? No, no, no. That was a joke. Um, I obviously think this is a more important series, but I don't know that many people interested in like in like good television. I mean, even the people who liked um, Game of Thrones, it's because it's a crossover hit, right? It's good, but it's also like super pulpy. Yeah, but I agree that it's like uh, Game of Thrones is properly made. It's like really well made, especially the first four or five seasons. It's also important from the perspective that there are not many shows that they are going to have such a, a slow pace. And I'm not talking about like a slow pace about like absolutely nothing happens, but it's like things happen at their own pace. You cannot speed them up. And is that there are not so many shows that are going to be like bold about doing that and keep all people engaged. Is that usually they expect, because Twin Peaks, a lot of stuff happens per episode. That's the reason why it's so hard to summarize. Game of Thrones, every single season can be summarized in two sentences. But tell me the last time you've had somebody uh, recommend a genuinely good, interesting TV show. And while you think about that, I'll say, I bet it hasn't happened in years because the people who consume television typically are not the people who are interested in like elevated. <laughs> okay, let's not eliminate our six people audience, you know? <laughs> what I say is like, <laughs> there is there, there is like good TV out there. It's like, I keep recommending you The Leftovers because I find it like mind blowing, you know? And there are like other TV shows that I think that they are quality TV, you know, as this, for example. And there are like other shows that I like as a guilty pleasure, you know, that is, a, I, I, it's, it's enjoyable. It's like, if I don't want to watch like an hour and a half of having to focus completely on this, I would watch like two episodes of a solo. That is one of them is their own story, maybe procedural or whatever. But I don't think that having shitty TV, it actually just generalizes that TV cannot do stuff in a serial format that is celebrated. I agree, but I think that cinema, for instance, we know there are people that just go for escapism. That's it. Yeah. And then there are people that go to experience a lot of emotions. I think the people that watch TV typically wouldn't be interested in Twin Peaks. That's all I'm saying. It's not a judgment on people who consume TV. It's not a judgment on anything. I just can't think of somebody in my life besides you that would be genuinely interested in Twin Peaks. Can you? You don't think that, for example, your husband would be interested in Twin Peaks? No, I watched the pilot with him and he had no interest in watching the rest of it. God, I think that everyone well, I mean, but that's cheating because we used to love Twin Peaks and then Lost came up, came out. But everyone that like Lost or everyone that like uh, Desperate Housewives. Nobody that liked Lost would be interested in Twin Peaks. 
Why? Because Lost is such mind-numbing nonsense. Like, there's nothing to that episode, or to that TV series. There's nothing. And that's my point, is that they're like, oh, this is mysterious. It doesn't matter that it doesn't make sense. It's so cool. I can't wait to find out why they're on the island. And then everybody got so pissed off, we never found out why they're on the island. No, look, if you actually see uh, like interviews with uh, Lindelof and Carlton Kors, is that what they say is that, look, what we are at fault is that we actually use this show, these 24 episodes per season, so as if we were going to have like the same kind of freedom that creators were having back then on HBO. Is that, but we realize along the way that it's like we don't have that freedom. Is that we are here just for cranking audience as much as we want. There were a point that on the second season or at the end of the first season, they asked them, is that, oh, can you make this story by just focusing it to just last 15 years? Or like a crazy number, like, there is no, we, we no, I mean, we're thinking that this will last like two or three seasons and we will have like everything solved. So they had to just improvise like more mysteries along the way for just feeling like 24 episodes. So I'm not saying that it's a perfect show, by all means, there are like ton of bullshit that is like just left completely open. But it happened exactly the same thing with Twin Peaks. That in the I'm, second I'm season, sorry, but JJ Abrams never created anything elevated. And I agree. Created... I I exclude JJ Abrams. I think so it's not like... it's not the fault of the network. It's the fault of the creator, JJ Abrams. Okay, but the create sorry, this show laws was created by three people. That is JJ Abrams, Carlton Kors, and Damon Lindelof. Jeffrey Leiber, J.J. Abrams, and Damon Lindelof. Carlton Curse is not credited as one of the creators? Uh, not on IMDb. That's not to say it's not credited. Okay, okay. Uh, so, J.J. Abrams created the show initially, but I think that he actually distanciated from the rest of the show. You know, he didn't actually let it remain. He just was like executive producer from the perspective that I gave the original idea and I don't... I, I'm doing other stuff at this point because he went jump. He basically just with Bat Robot just jump into doing movies more than just remain on TV. And I do want to say that I only watched the first season of Lost, so I'm really talking. How many seasons did it go? Six, seven. Six, six. So I don't, I don't know what that TV show ultimately became. So I, I can't really say. I look. I would tell you that is like a, given the kind of constraints that they have. I won't say that it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that it got like a very bad rap from how it ended. But it's like how it ended, I, from my perspective, I feel like that it was, it was okay. I mean, it was not perfect, but you know, it was okay given like all the bullshit that it was just introduced along the years. So it's like, if someone was expecting that everything was going to be solved and making sense, they were in for a surprise. Is that you had to just enjoy it as an experience about like this, about mystery and some of them will make sense other probably not but they're not going to be like making an extra effort of everything like just fitting nicely into what we are looking for as a society that is like we want everything to just fit in nicely what was this story that i told you the other day about like someone that i that i met and we were talking about ice white sats and he told me that is that like he felt like the story didn't actually just fit nicely that you didn't actually just that you actually start like just poking you could actually just find holes and i was saying but it's not about the holes or no holes it's about like the messes you know that you have to just take it as a bit more of a high level story not about like what it happens on the screen 
you know, and I think that that's a bit what it happens with Lost too, and even like what it happens with Twin Peaks. Like this kind of shows that are about like mysteries, it's not about like just solving every single mystery, it's about like just the trip that you're going through. I don't disagree with you, but where we started was, don't you think the people who watched Lost would like Twin Peaks? My answer is no. Those people were upset with the way Lost ended. And I, I stand by my current statement. I don't know anybody in my life that would be like, oh yeah, this is an interesting journey to go on. Honestly, if I don't know anyone that would enjoy Twin Peaks right now that they haven't watched it, you know, it's like, I feel like I need to just improve get my social circle. I, I need to get, honestly, I need to get new friends because when I was in college, it's like all of us, they felt like just mind blown about this show. About like, look, it's true, not that everything is going to be like resolved, but it's like, it's about the trick. It's about like the kind of reality, like quirky reality that is building. It has a value in this show. I agree with yeah. you a lot. Yeah. So it's like, I, I'm not disagreeing with you, you know, it's like, I just feel like just peace with myself about like what I've been doing, you know, it's like, I'm not being like surrounded myself with the right type of people in my life. Well, you're in America, man. I mean, <laughs> true, maybe that, you know, but it's, it's, I don't know, whatever. In any case, it's like, I think that I would try to recommend it. I would be like, just a bit more of that crazy person in a shop box that is like just screaming about like, you should watch this, this is something that define modern television. It's not The Sopranos, it's not, you know, like a Hill Street Blues, it's Twin Peaks. Well, and Hill Street Blues, I think that it's from our Frost. So this is, I think, the longest answer to one of our questions. <laughs> but going back to the original question, would I recommend it? Yes, but not just to anybody. I would have to like understand their tastes first. Yeah, for me, it's like, I would definitely recommend this. It's like, I, this actually reignited my love for the show. At the beginning, I was feeling like, why did I like it so much? And two or three episodes into it, it's like, oh yeah, because it's fucking amazing. Uh, could you remember it? Uh, yes, overall, I will remember specific scenes. I'll remember, I always remember Laura Palmer's name, but there's so many cool details to this. So many little plot twists and revelations that I'll remember it in a vague sense. I'll remember, hey, I really like season one. Yeah, no, the same way for me. It's like it's impossible to remember absolutely everything that happens on the show. There are like so many people, so many names, so many relationships. That is basically impossible. Yeah. Uh, is there anything artistic about it? Yeah, I mean, this is just textbook David Lynch at his best, his weirdest, um, but also his most accessible, to be honest. Like, you don't have to be willing to sit through a racer head to sit through Twin Peaks and love it. Uh, so yeah, I think his direction is clear. His influence on everything that he didn't direct is there. I Yes. Do you think that this is more accessible than Blue Velvet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, for me, it's a bit more accessible, but at the same time, not that much. You know, it's more accessible, sure. Because it's TV and he has like more time for just narrating a story, I feel. But the topics are pretty similar to each other on this first season. They are, but Blue Velvet gets dark in some pretty grotesque and hideous ways that this film doesn't. And just that alone alienates so many people. So from my perspective, is idea there is something artistic about it. I think that as I was saying, I really love the use of music 
you know, there is like another source I may actually say that is like, oh, you know, you could have 100 different songs. You actually make this work with 15 or 20. Yep. And there are like many, ah, this is singing on the second season, so I cannot give it away. Uh, but some of the scenes for just building up fear and creeping the audience out are pretty good, are like pretty, pretty solid kind of a scary stuff without like just going into the jump scare stuff. Yep. And that's like pretty, pretty smart. Uh, do you think that this is stylized? Yep. Yep. I, did we talk about this recording? Yeah. I mean, this is just, there's a little bit that's dated just because obviously this was filmed at the tail end of the eighties, early nineties, but um, the story is ultimately compelling, you know, 22 years later. Um, now this is a great, great show, no matter when you watch it. Yeah, I think as we were saying earlier, it's like, this is actually uh, looking at West Coast, a small village, America, through David Lynch's priest. That hasn't changed much. Is that you could add mobile phones, you could There's add like, so some stuff in there, but it's is is I would actually just say as I was telling you that this could actually be recorded nowadays with very small changes. Agreed. Yeah. And the last question: Would you turn this into a movie? I don't think so. I think you would give up a lot of the things that I find extremely charming about it, like the character development, the time spent unhurried with each of the even the minor characters, like. Um, I can't think of her name, the, the receptionist at the sheriff's office, Andy. Um, no, I, I think this particular story benefits from having, what, 40 episodes? Well, well, let's just talk about the first eight. It benefits from having eight hours to talk about this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I agree on that. I think that it's like it actually lives up to its full potential thanks to that. And that's the reason what I feel is that if Mulholland Drive was amazing as a movie, what could have happened if they had turned it into a full-fledged TV show? We'll never know. Yeah. Uh, so should we score this? Yes, we should. And what is your score? Um, I would say, honestly, an 8.5. Okay. For me, this is a 9. For me, this and I, because of several times that I mentioned that how influential this has been for TV from that point on. How have you actually just take soap opera elements, elevating them, and how that influence is still seen nowadays. How this mystery TV, you know, like this, like, oh my God, what is going to happen? How he has been like just living on. So you may have liked this or have a little bit more esteem for this than me, but I, I overall was blown away at how much I enjoyed this. I didn't think I was going to like it so much. And this is this is good. It's a good series. It's better. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, the only reason why I, I go like to the nine is because I can see the influence by nowadays standard. It's like, it's, I cannot think of, I try to rewatch the X-Files multiple times. <laughs> multiple times. And I used to love it. I was, you know, it was my favorite show when I was growing up. And it is so poorly in comparison to this that it's like it feels like it's completely stuck in time on the you know early 90s. And it's like at that point, Twin Peaks was already a reality. And it's like it's 
I mean, it is the difference between timely and timeless, right? Yeah. X Files was incredibly timely. It was super slick at the time and just didn't stand up to the test of you know years passing. Yeah, and it's a bit of a pity. It's like I I try like multiple times and I feel like, is there something wrong with me or with the show? And after watching two pieces, that is with the show. It's, it's definitely show. <laughs> definitely with the show. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry, but it's like no. This Chris Carter, I think that he was the creator of uh, of the X Files. It's like no. This this didn't age as well as we expected it to. So uh, for me, from that perspective, is like I cannot think of any other TV show from the '80s onward that I will like, just be watching again and again. Six Feet Under. Well, but Six Feet Under is already 2000. So I mean, like from the '80s to the 2000s, let's just leave oh, it. Okay, you it. know, is that from from that point is that we already have like the modern television paradigm that is that like, we already standardized because also Six Feet Under is another elevated soap opera. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that is like it plays a bit more with the uh, family drama and the uh, and the black comedy. While this one actually just plays a bit more with the murder mystery format. The same way as also Desperate Hasway's partially an elevated soap opera. Which thanks to Twin Peaks and our discussion on Saturday, I watched like seven or eight episodes of Desperate Housewives. <laughs> How was it? It stands up remarkably well. <laughs> one day I want to watch it again because it was like one of those shows that I, I actually just scorned so much about like, this is bullshit. I don't want to watch it. So when I watched it for the first time, it was already like in season four or season five. And I was like just so addicted to it about like, you know, like my ultimate guilty pleasure about like, this is bad, but I cannot stop watching it. Until I got to a point like, wait, maybe this is not bad. It's not. It's pretty. It's pretty good. It's a little bit timely. There's some things in there that you like. This wouldn't fly today, but it's it's a good show. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I I just had the feeling that we wouldn't have this pretty houseways of six feet under without Twin Peaks. I agree. Yeah, I, uh, David Lynch's influence is huge. Yeah. So uh, I'm super excited about like what he's going to. Well, I need to rewatch the third the third season of Twin Peaks because I felt okay. I see what you're doing, but this is like way more Lynchian than I expected, you know, because this is Lynchian by the standards of Blue Velvet, but the third season is Lynchian by the standards of probably Inland Empire. Ooh, wow. Now I'm intrigued. So I never finished season two back when I was in, in my 20s. So part of that will be new and season three is all new to me. So I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really curious about like, watching it now with the context that I revealed, because many characters like go back, but it's like I couldn't remember it because I watched it 20 years ago. But it turns out it's going to be fine. I remember where it ended. But now you need to know quite a bit about the wall that he's building right now on these seasons. So we will continue to be reviewing season two and three of the series, broken up into at least four. Four, episodes. yeah, four or five. five. If we usually add the movie too. Yeah. And we will be sprinkling in movie reviews throughout. Yeah, and our next movie that we already, this is going to be like just published in chronological order. They're not going to be like just bonuses or anything. Um, and the next one is going to be The Marriage of Maria Brown by Fassbender. Can't wait to revisit him. <laughs> All right, man, this was great. I'm pretty happy that we're enjoying it so much. Yeah, me too. Thank you for suggesting it.
Yeah, no worries. And to that audience out there, it's like a stop sheltering in place. If you're allowed on your estate, just stop sheltering. Um, Wash your hands. <laughs> Bye. Bye.